Thank you for joining us for another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. As always, we love feedback from our listeners. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. We'll chat at you next week. Well, Andrew, we're about to kick off the fourth and final episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts, Agronomist Edition. And I uh, have just really thoroughly enjoyed this. It's um, it's awesome to look at the guest list. Uh, I'll be a little bit long when you ask Andrew Penny to line up some agronomists <laughs> to talk to. Uh, you want to be careful that you specify. Uh, I think we ended up with 17, but what a great, what a great group of uh, professional agronomists and just a, a really nice wide set of uh, uh, both geography, but also just different uh, experiences they've had over the 2022 season and, and great advice going into 2023. Tell our listeners about who they're going to get to hear from on the fourth edition. Yep. So we got an all Iowa edition of agronomists. So we get to listen to uh, Lauren Botin, uh, Jim McDermott, Neil Borgmeyer, and uh, Dean Grossnickel. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of years of experience on this one and, uh, yeah, super excited to hear, uh, what, what these guys, you know, their key takeaways from 2022. Yeah. It's all, all Iowa agronomists, but definitely a very diverse group when you think about kind of maybe their specialties and, and some of the different, uh, passions they have around agronomy. Um, so it'll be exciting to get feedback from our listeners. We hope you guys enjoy this and we'll catch up with you on the backside. Hey, welcome back. We're with uh, Lauren Botine, an agronomist who covers uh, West Central Iowa. Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing well this morning. How are you? Really good. Really good. Uh, really appreciate you being on here with us and, uh, uh, you know, giving us the time to learn from what you saw in 2022. So I, I figure uh, it, it's a pretty broad question, but I feel like there's a, a lot of good conversations and a lot of lessons learned from this. So, so Lauren, let's, let's talk about your 2022. Uh, what, what did you see and, and what were some key takeaways? Plenty of key takeaways. Um, I, uh, I cover pretty broad ter- uh, territory, north to south. So I was in some of that to kind of, uh, oh, it's exceptional drought now on the drought monitor all the way down to uh, kind of I-80 um, where folks were getting good timely rains where 300 bushel yield averages were, were not uncommon and uh, 75 bushel beans. So yeah. um, kind of dealt with a, a wide variation of uh, emotions um, when, when answering the, the phone. Um, when Who's calling ask, me now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you bet. So I'd, be, I'd have to ask, is that a corn or a soybean meal half the time? So um, so I, I kind of wanted to start a little bit, I guess, with uh, kind of some, uh, I guess, early cold, wet planting, kind of that mid-April time frame, I guess, and have a little bit of a different spin than maybe some other folks might might have on that. Um, some of that earlier, uh, earlier planting that was kind of that marginal cold and wet, um, led to a lot of red root rot in my area, kind of yep. in, in, in the, uh, the lush hills, if you will. And, um, from what I understand back in 2011, 2012, that was a pretty bad deal when the drought came through back then. And I'm kind of flaring its ugly head, um, um now. So I'm dealing with that a little bit, um, and it seems like that earlier, earlier cold wet planting um, led to f- to some fusarium crown rot, and yep. then that, uh, from what I understand, um, kind of uh, piggybacks with red root rot disease, and as you know, um, that just causes the plant to melt down um, prematurely, um, yield loss, uh, lodging, you, you name it, just a whole hodgepodge of a mess. Yep, that, I'm I'm cur- I'm glad glad you brought that up, Lauren. You know that was that was one of the more uh, common 
uh, discussions that we've had throughout this podcast with other agronomists. And, you know, as go on throughout my territory, there, there, I always tell people there was that April 24th planning date, give or take maybe a seven mm-hmm. to 10 day window. And, and uh, you know, it, it was more, it wasn't really product specifically, it was just planning mm-hmm. date. And, and you could have that same product planted uh, a week later or 10 days later. And it's a totally, it acts like a totally, you know, yield was much better, no root rot, um, no crown rot. And so I think that window, you know, we just got so much rain after that planning window that, you know, with, with the stress that we encountered, uh, crown rot, I feel like was almost inevitable, inevitable. Yes. And it's, it's kind of weird to be talking about a crown rot or a root rot disease in such a dry year, but yeah. that red, that red root rot is a, a very under, understudied uh, disease and a very, I guess, uh, I don't know, we don't give it enough credit. I think we need to probably get on that, but it only shows up in, in dry years. So yep. I don't know how we <laughs> plan for research on a dry year, I guess. It'll probably turn around and start raining on us. Yeah. We'll, we'll just plan to do some research on a wet year. And then she'll, she'll turn out to be dry, as always. There you go. Can I can I ask a question about that, Lauren? Because I guess that's yeah. something, I mean, as I think over my uh, 13, 14 years that I've been doing this, I think I've only seen red root rot once, once or twice actually in a field. So tell me, what, what do you take away from that in terms of management? for 2023 is that a is that a hybrid thing or or just looking at planting conditions how do you manage through that oh man that's a tough question um (laughs) i i've done a lot of research i've called a lot of university folk i've uh, talked to um a a good uh, friend of uh, ours andrew that uh, used to be a a breeder um for uh, bear um and did a lot of research for it and it's just it just rears its ugly head whenever it kind of feels like it. I, I'm sure it's it's soil derived or it is soil derived. Um, that that key that key factor seems to be that cold wet soil. So probably push off uh, planting as as long as you can into some warmer soils to uh, try and negate that as best as you can. Yeah. Um, probably rotation to beans would would very much help to um, oh get get rid of that host crop if you will, but. Um, it's, 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 it's just a uh, one, very it? random. <laughs> it, it's funny. Cause you know, we just had that, the podcast with, uh, Dr. Tamara Jackson, uh, Zims and, and, you know, mm-hmm. we, we learned how, how little we know about crown rot and, and you kind of touched on it. I feel like we know even less on red root rot, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I it, think, I think with all these things, with all the agronomists we've talked to preparing for this episode, I think it just goes to show the importance of planting into good conditions and paying attention to more than the 48 to 72 hour oh, yeah. yep. forecast. It seems like, you know, we've air quote gotten away with it a few years where we go, ah, it's really not fit today, but, but maybe the trend over seven to 10 days is warming this year. It feels like we pushed, um, we pushed the envelope <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Where maybe the short term <laughs> forecast looked good, but then the, the midterm forecast is really struggling and, and then the year didn't really, hide those mistakes. And so, um, yeah, wholeheartedly just, agree. Yeah. Yep. And, and it, it doesn't seem to follow hybrids. Cause like, like you said, Andrew, um, it could be, uh, the same hybrid across the fence, same soil type. And it just hit, hit the one, the one hybrid, maybe planted a little bit earlier. Yep. Um, it's, uh, it seems like, uh, west of highway 59 here in the kind of more extreme less hills, I'd call it. Um, I've been getting more of those calls, but um, it's also kind of uh, very sporadic as you go east 
um, kind of that Carroll area. And then um, I've heard of some reports over in eastern Iowa, too, but um, just maybe more concentrated over west of me here, west of 59. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was some good uh, information, Lauren. Um, was, there, was, there, was there anything else that stuck out to you uh, in, in 2022? You uh, you know that I uh, I completed my master's working with the soybean gall mid, so I have to there talk, we go. talk a little bit the on soybean the soybean gall mid. Absolutely. I was, I was hoping you would. <laughs> yes, you bet. So this year we didn't see a whole lot of it, did we? Did you guys see much of it? No, actually. So... The, the only thing that surprised me this year, I had, I had a grower down by Dedham um, mm-hmm. shoot me a picture. And he was like, hey, what is this? And so the, the first picture was a little blurry. And I said, I, I thought I'd, it maybe looked like soybean gall midge, you know, at the base of the, the soybean plant. So mm-hmm. I had to take a closer picture that was clear so I could zoom in. And sure enough, it, it was soybean gall midge. You know, he, he split it, did all that stuff for me. And so that, that was the furthest south that I've seen soybean gall midge in, in Dedham, Iowa. So, I mean, I know, I know it's been moving south in, in pretty much every direction for the most part. But, yeah, I'd love to pick your brain on that. So um, they've pretty much confirmed it in every county, I generally speaking, west of I-35 in some fashion. Um, but um, it's worse, I would say, um, towards the Missouri uh, River. But um, my theory as to why we're not seeing it near as bad in, in dry years is the, um, that particular midge species needs to, you, you, everybody's seen the, uh, the red larvae at the base of the stems. Yep. They, um, to, to go into their pupation um, stage, they need to fling themselves off the soybean plant, land on the soil surface, and wiggle down into the soil to pupate. And it being so dry, um, they were, I would say, relatively um, unsuccessful. (laughs) They Ah. probably hit the soil surface and crispified fried in the sun and uh, didn't didn't (laughs) get to uh, pupate down into the soil or wiggle down into the soil to pupate. So um, that's that's my theory is we didn't see it near as bad this year just because it was so dry. And um, last year was dry as well. We didn't see them near as bad. They're they're there. Yeah. Um, but, um, not those, uh, 50, 7,500 foot, um, border, you know, devastation into the border of a, of a soybean field. So, yep. um, so preliminary data might suggest that it, it would be beneficial for them to have at least somewhat moist or, or wetter soil so that they can make it down into the soil. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and some, something kind of cool if you're, if you're bored, um, after a, a nice big <laughs> rainfall, um, you go out uh, to a soybean field of known soybean uh, gall midge infestation, and you'll actually look on the soil surface, and you'll see the larvae um, on the soil surface trying to wiggle down into the soil, or some that were unsuccessful that perished. But huh. um, you'll actually see them in the act. It's kind of kind of cool, but interesting. Yes, like to your point, though, uh, moisture really drives their success. So. Okay. But awesome. um, that's, yeah, that's a little tidbit on the soybean gall midge, I guess. But um, a lot more research needs to be done on those little stinkers. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I know that's something they're looking at Iowa State here, uh, too. So, yeah, definitely look forward to keeping in, keeping up on that on that little little bugger. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right, Lauren. Well, uh, any anything else you'd like to add to the 2022 growing season? I would just like to just generally uh, say I've been very impressed with um, our just genetics of corn and soybeans in general and their ability to uh, um, six or just just thrive in a, um, a drought stricken environment and um, just 
uh, we wouldn't be seeing these yields um, uh, in if it was 20, 30 years ago. Our, our hybrids and oh, yeah. our soybean varieties have um, come so far in their ability to uh, grow through these uh, very challenging times. So Absolutely. just really, really exciting time to be in an agronomy. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, um, exactly what you just said. So I started, um, I started being a seed dealer. My family's been in the business for 30 plus years, but my role started in 2010. And I remember a couple of customers that got really excited because they had a field on their farm do 200 bushels. Just, just one of their parcels of land uh, hit that number. And even with all the challenges we had this year, it's amazing how many whole farm averages were over 200 bushel. It's just amazing the technology. And I think that goes to really every piece. I mean, the equipment manufacturers, the, yeah. the research yep. into seed and, and varieties mm-hmm. and seed treatments and placement. I mean, just all the technology we use, it seems like we can weather these storms in a way that um, we certainly couldn't. Definitely 20 or 30 years ago, but even even 10 years ago. I mean, I oh, think yeah. the, the technology is just in, incredibly impressive. That, that That's one of the things that I think gets really gets me passionate about ag is, is that all the money that, that seed companies, you know, from, from, uh, Bayer to Corteva to Syngenta that, that they pump into their breeding program. And, and I think that, I think that really, you know, obviously you have your favorites, right. But, but I think in general, just in, in crop production, you know, I think as we're a community, right. And so mm-hmm. look, looking at that, I really love seeing stuff like that, and, and when we have years like this that that is really challenging, that's when you that's when you see the the research and all all the money put into that pay off, and and I think you you said it well. So let's switch gears, Lauren, and you bet. Talk to us about um, I I've said on most of these episodes that this is kind of my favorite time of year because we get to look backwards and evaluate what worked and what didn't, but really the exciting part is putting together the plan for mm-hmm. 2023. Um, as you're helping growers think about that, you know, obviously we know that, that hybrid placement and those, those sorts of things are important, but as you think about just agronomic practices, what are you encouraging your, um, your sellers and growers that you support to be thinking about as they put that plan together? Oh boy. Um, well, you, you had already, well, you had already mentioned hybrid placement as a, is a big thing. Um, you know, what, is it going to rain next year or not? You know, I, nobody really knows if we knew that answer, we'd be probably millionaires, but, um, we'd be on a beach somewhere, to, right? Yeah. Just, uh, just very much, um, focus on, on hybrid placement, um, and, you know, keep a, I guess, you know, just if this trend continues, kind of keep an eye on those drought stores, I guess. Yep. Um, then that, that goes into uh, management practices, obviously your recreational tillage that maybe doesn't need to be done could probably be, <laughs> well you know, said. Could probably, <laughs> Recre- could recreational. I love that recreational uh, tillage. Yeah, I got nothing to do today. Let's go, let's go till something. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, and obviously some folks that uh, have poorly drained soils need to do that to get things dried up, but um, uh, try the best you can to not to do that (laughs) or go as deep, I guess. But as you um, said that, I was picturing like a funny shirt that just said recreational tillage or or something that had a (laughs) picture. That might be my favorite. That might be my favorite politically correct term I've heard on the show yet. Recreational tillage. I love that one. I think I I think I tweeted about that and I got I don't know people kind of got on me about saying the word recreational tillage. <laughs> That's hilarious. But um 
Oh, and then um, I obviously it's pretty cold out right now, and uh, things are kind of starting to look like soils are going to get pretty pretty chilly here shortly. But um, oh, people were trying to put in hydrus on when the soil was too warm and oh, yeah. uh, maybe not fit. And I, it's it's getting to be go time now if you yep. haven't already. But um, just really make sure your soil conditions are fit so you're not watching your dollar bills fly out of the the trench there, the furrow behind. The, I think the price of anhydrous is more like hundred dollar bills. I yeah, yeah, you bet. But um that's that's just overarching, just you know, just your general comments, I guess. But um work with your local your salesman, seedsman, whatever, um to to um make it the best plan possible, your local agronomist, because we all want to help you succeed. Well said. Well, Lauren, I, I really appreciate the time, and you had some you had some great advice for for listeners going into twenty twenty three. So I really appreciate that. So, you bet. Thanks for having me on this morning. Thanks bet. so much, Lauren. Hey, welcome back. We're uh, we're we're joined by another agronomist, uh, Dean Grossnickel. Dean, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yourself? Very, very good. Uh, excited to uh, continue to learn from you. And, uh, <laughs> I, I suppose, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little, uh, hopefully you don't okay. get too embarrassed. Uh, you know, I've, I've kind of been, been in the process of, of thanking people that have impacted my career in, you know, directly or indirectly. And, you know, you're, you're someone that I've, I've definitely looked up to for many years. And, uh, you know, I, I can think back listening to you, you know, what, 10, 12 years ago, um, you know, you're someone that made a, a big impact in my career and, and how I wanted to be remembered as an agronomist and, and, you know, just, just a lot of different ways. So appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's, uh, uh those are very kind words and I don't take them lightly. So thank you very much. Yeah. So. And, and still to this day, I remember, gosh, like I said, 10 years ago, I remember being in a field looking at Femesifen carry carryover. And so it, it's, it's stuff like that, that is just stuck in my mind, listening to the way you talk about it and, and teach people. And yeah, so it, you've definitely made an impact on my career. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, so Dean, I figured we'd start, you know, the, the, the goal of this, uh, agronomist edition, uh, actually first, uh, tell us a little bit, you know, tell us your name, uh, where you're from, uh, what you do. Yeah. Uh, Dean Grossnickel, um, and uh, from uh, Gilbert, Iowa here, uh, grew up on a farm in Northwest Iowa, uh, been in all sorts of different ag careers, uh, worked ag retail for eight years, uh, worked for Iowa State University for seven years, doing herbicide efficacy trials for Dr. Mike Owen and group there, and then uh, got on with Syngenta and been as an agronomist with Syngenta for nine years, and then uh, recently took the technical development lead uh, role for Syngenta here. Um, looking more forward thinking, uh, into the future as, as we go through things. So nice. that's been a bit, you know, been a little bit about my journey and, uh, where I've been, uh, as far as uh, my career goes. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, let, let's talk about 2022 Dean. Um, you know, it was definitely an interesting year. Um, let's, what, what were, what were some of the, the things you noticed, uh, during the 2022 growing, growing season, uh, you know, even through harvest that, that maybe positively or negatively imp impact crop growth and development and or yields. Yeah, uh, biggest thing for me, Andrew and and Sean is is really a weed control sticks out. I'm a I'm a nozzle head by training and <laughs> and uh, and so uh, weed control is a passion of mine and and everything and it's be 
and as you know, as we've seen things, and especially, you know, it was definitely dry up in that northwest corner of Iowa. Um, and even as we go, you know, east into uh, the eastern side of the state, um, just how the year set up made weed control a real big challenge in that, um, especially for water, and I'm thinking more water hemp than pigweeds, and to a lesser extent grasses. I know some some people struggled with grasses in their group 15s and that sort of thing yep. this year. Um, I, do, I just really think that typically when we get that nice layer of residual down, we get our crop planted. That's how I really like to do things. I like to plant. I like to lay that layer, that herbicide uh, pre um, on top of that, and then get a nice rain to work that in. And then we're set the stage for a good, that good post-emergence application. But Mother Nature threw us a challenge this year. So we didn't really get a lot of stuff planted in April. And um, it seems like uh, once, once the planter started rolling in, in May, then we got a couple real hot, hot days and shots where I think we got weeds germinating before we got herbicides activated. And, uh, then we we're into this no man's land, right? We're in this land where we got corn that's starting to come up. Our herbicides are either not not working fully, or we need to uh, come in earlier than we had planned with our post-emergence application, and it becomes a real logistical nightmare for a lot of your retailers and/or growers because we're actually trying to fix a problem because our pre didn't work, um, and. We really don't want to be out there that soon. We, yeah. we need to get after uh, after other things, getting our beans planted, you know, getting our bean trees put on, and we're having to deal with post-emergence corn too soon. And that's that that's been been a real big struggle. And and I really think those hot days got our germ got a germination event uh, going prior to our herbicides getting efficacy or or starting to work or at least the group 15s. And then that just put uh, put us in a spiral. Combine yeah. that with we're, we're trying to go after our post-emergence and those hot days really made a lot of herbicides struggle on the post side. And we can dig into that a little bit more, but, yep. but that's really what I noticed um, going forward. We control, we struggled, yep. uh, you know, in areas. Yeah, I, I, I saw that too, Dean. You know, you look at some of, a few of those days in April where the, the conditions were, were good enough to spray, but not good enough to plant. And, and then mm-hmm. not getting back in the field until, you know, mid-May in some areas. So you, you look yep. at, you look at a full month, you know, in, what's the average residual, what, roughly 30 days, give or take, depending on the active ingredient. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, that, <laughs> that, that, and then, you know, we have saturated soils. So, you know, once, once that chemical goes into solution, what, what that does to residual, um, and, and mm-hmm. there's always differences with active ingredients. So, so I'm, I'm curious to, to pick your brain on this, Dean, as, as we move forward and it, and it appears we have you know environmental conditions that are just uh, you know e- extreme right either extremely wet or mm-hmm. extremely dry and and I, yep. I would say this question would would probably be more tailored towards the the dry what what would mm-hmm. you advise a grower to do if if we're you know say we're we're like 2021 where we were extremely dry in the spring what what's mm-hmm. a what's a good her, i mean a herbicide recommendation when it looks at you know taking into consideration residual under a yeah. dry scenario. Yeah. And, and you kind of hit on it a little bit there and, you know, some of those, those applications that, you know, hit early on in, in April that, that you may have did, did a foundation rate. 
right? You're really, you're really asking a lot of that, that residual to, to hang out for the full 30 days before, you know, before it peters out. So if you're going to go early, say, say we have the same situation or scenario that happened this year, next year, right? And you're going to go early, you're going to have to do a game time decision and maybe adjust your rate higher to get you out further in into that. So you can stretch that out. Granted, we know you know we don't really like to change that. Prepaid for a foundation, followed by a post yep. type application. But you're going to have to make those in time game decisions if again that situation um, hits us. If we're dry, we got to think about okay, if I'm not going to get the rain needed to incorporate my my residual, do I do I run a you know rotary hoe? Do I do a little one path you know a, incorporation with the tillage implement? To help at least get it started. It's not the end all be all just because I did the, the, you know, tillage doesn't mean it's fully incorporated. I still need a rain to help me out there, but it's at least got the process started. Right. So um, maybe that tillage pass to get that herbicide incorporated, get it started off on the right foot and a little rate appreciation would help if we're, if we're going out there really soon and then seeing that forecast, um, it, hey, it may be a couple of three weeks before I get in. Maybe I need to have that rate appreciation. So those are a couple of things that I at least start off with. And uh, again, try and do some sort of timing to make sure that that we capture a rain in there. I know it's easier said than done. Yep. It's it's easy to play Monday morning Monday morning quarterback <laughs> on it, but it's it's you know it's kind of the things that we we just can't get stuck in a rut and think, well, this is my plan. I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna do it regardless but we got to make in time game decisions to help put our best foot forward so if that makes sense do you think there's if if say say there's a grower that's trying to think differently and and be more efficient with his pre's and and then post what Mm -hmm. would there be anything they could try you know say say we do go into 2023 and we're extremely dry chance of rain looks slim is there anything they can that you know they could think about doing that you know, instead of getting that pre down around planting, um, maybe wait on that wait, wait on their first pre, right. And, and make it essentially an early post. And, and yes, I mean, that, that's a good strategy, Andrew. So, I mean, you're, you're right. You know, that makes it, that, that is, if you, if you know that you can do that, but I think the, the caution is right. The caution is we know that, that weeds, we let, if you, especially if you got high pressure, right. we got to, we got to then start thinking if we're going to do that, our strategy has got to think, do I have high pressure weeds, low pressure weeds? And what are those weeds cost me for competition, right? Yep. Because uh, weeds will cost us two to four inch weeds when they're competing with our crop from emergence on, right? They can rob us of about you know, both 14 pounds of nitrogen, about a pound of P and about 17 pounds of K. Okay. So we know what fertilizer prices are doing, right? Yep. And they're not cheap. And if all of a sudden now we're tying up that nutrients due to weed competition, and it's not necessarily they're all, that that nutrients lost, but it's tied up for this moment in time. Yep. And uh, and uh, we got to be very careful on that. Now, if you don't have that much weed pressure, um, again, you can allow that, make that that early post. But man, if you have any sort of high high intensity weed pressure, we got to keep that keep the that nutrient for our crop for this year. And uh, that starts with you know making sure we have that pre out there post. It, you know, again, that's an in time game management kind of decision. Uh, you know, guys, that that I think that 
you can do, but you gotta, we gotta just, you know, plan accordingly. And, and, uh, but that is a great strategy if, if, uh, you know, we don't get the, the rain to, uh, get that worked in. So. Yeah. Dean, I, I guess I would ask you, we've had, we've interviewed a number of agronomists for, uh, this particular edition of the podcast. And it seems like consistently a lot of agronomists are recommending the consideration to plant corn and soy at the same time, or even consider soy first, corn second, due to some of the observations we've made, you know, over the last few years. Do you, do you see growers doing that and are, and are they adjusting, um, you know, in kind of the same fashion that Andrew's talking about? Because I think of traditionally we're starting to consider corn around April 10th. Um, it, mm-hmm. We certainly have growers that are saying, okay, that that's maybe riskier for the corn. So assuming conditions are, are fair, I'll go out and maybe start planting soybeans at that time. That's often, you know, two to three weeks before we would we would even consider, I mean, 10 years ago, you know, that would have seemed like an absurd know, concept. So do you, do you, do you see that happening? If so, how, how are you guys responding with, with uh pre early post kind of adjusting those herbicide plans? Yeah. You're, you're kind of, Sean, you're the kind of grower that makes my heart, uh, give me heartburn. Right? So <laughs> you're, uh, you know, you're, you're switching up the patterns here, our, our normalities, right. We're, we're planting soybeans earlier and, and, uh, we go back into that and I do see growers doing that, right? So that we're planting corn and soybeans at the exact same time, but is our herbicide programs changing accordingly? And I would say right now we're, we're behind on changing our herbicide programs accordingly. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're asking these again, more foundation rates, the old roundup ready approach and roundup ready was still, still King. Um, the straight good goods glyphosate uh, was still King. And we're, we really haven't seen that rate appreciation. You start planting beans in the middle of April, and then, and then uh, when are we plant? When are we spraying our post? You know, whether it be uh, an E three or a dicamba bean, we're, it's June, right? Right? Yeah. It's yep. June when we're plant. Where we're spraying our post, and it's like, oh, that's <laughs> a long way to, to get, get that uh, that uh, residual out there. So. If we're going to do that, we definitely need that, <clears throat> excuse me, higher rate of residual out there to, to get us out there. The The problem is that these herbicides do work good. And and uh, a lot of times, you know, we, we're, we get our, we plant our beans, then we plant our corn, all the pre's are going out at the same time. Then we focus on our post corn application. Soybeans are getting the second, <clears throat> second tier there. And you know, you go by, drive by, drive by, and man, that pre's working good. That pre's working good. And and really, we need to start thinking about, <clears throat> we preach about it, those overlapping residuals. We really want to see, and I, I want to hear that call from that grower saying, man, I'm out here. It doesn't look like I'm spraying any weeds. I, I don't know why I'm out here. Yeah. That's when we actually need to be doing it because we are truly getting that overlapping residual. Usually once we see weeds start to break, that means our residuals petered out, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yep. it's, it's, it's fallen to the side. And, and now we, we layered that residual out there and are we going to get a rain to get it incorporated in time before it runs out even more? And, you know, that, that and, Dean, you that's know, such, yeah. that's such a great call out because one of the observations we had, and, and one of the things we try hard not to do on this, 
on, on our podcast is really get, um, you know, too deep in any brands, but in, in this Mm -hmm. kind of great E3 Dicamba, um, you know, challenging scenario, the Dicamba deadline, I think forced a lot of guys to spray bare dirt. And I, and I, and I think, you know, that might not be the reason they went out with the sprayer, but it it might've caused early action in the field. And, and we actually, I think saw a benefit from that because it, it, it forced our hand into the field where otherwise maybe we felt like we had the freedom. So I, I love that term overlapping residual. I think that's a critical thing for us to take away is we have to monitor the activity and you're exactly right. Not wait till it burns out. Cause you could certainly see a scenario where that residual wears out. Even if you can get out and apply your secondary mode of action, if, if it's seven to 10 days worth of dry weather, we don't get rain to activate. I mean, that, there's a yeah. huge amount of pressure put on that, on that space. And I, and I agree with you, Sean, I think you are a hundred percent correct in that statement that especially this year, because, you know, beans got planted, we, you know, majority stuff got planted in May. Right. And then, then uh, we had the, the deadline forced the hand to spray. Yep. And, and because of that, I agree with you a hundred percent that you saw better control there because we were spraying dirt in that with small weeds, we're spraying dirt. We're getting that overlapping residual there and versus, Oh, I can wait on these other acres because I have this deadline in front of me exact wrong way to think about it, but that's what happened. And, and so, um, I, I do think it helped in weed control in those, you know, in those, uh, acres because of that. So I think you're hundred percent right, Sean. Yeah. I'm cu- I'm curious, Dean. In, in your travels, uh, you know, I've I've yet to experience in my immediate area, um, Palm Ramranth. Is is that <laughs> is that something you've had to deal with uh, as you travel the state? Oh well, I mean, it's here, right? It's, it yep. was here when uh, several years ago, and I think uh, Hartzer did that that survey across the state. Uh, where they found a bunch of Palmer here, there, and everywhere, kind of in these CRP kind of acres. But as those acres, you know, that CRP finally took hold, or pollinator habitat took hold, it choked it for the most part out. Yeah. So, um, that, yeah, there's there's some Palmer down in that southwest corner of the state, uh, kind of, you know, along the Missouri River and and that sort of thing. It really doesn't seem like it's spread a whole lot. Um, Paul, our water hemp is still our main enemy here, yep. a number one, but, uh, yeah, you can still find some around. And, and if we, it's more on those coarse sandy soils, you know, Palmer really likes the heat. Now I, I it may adapt to us, uh, our temperature and our environments. Um, I'm, I'm sure it will at some point, but right now water hemp's the main driver and, and, uh, uh, although you can find it. I don't get questions a whole lot about Palmer's really, really becoming the issue. It's mainly water hemp in the state. So, so I've got two questions and uh, we're kind of hijacking. We're supposed to be letting you talk about what you observed in 2022, <laughs> but we uh, kind of hijacking the, uh, the recording here a little bit, but so two, two questions that I would have that have really been posed from growers. So first, um, especially in, some seed corn production, but seeing water mm. hemp struggles in corn, yeah. especially where we have lower pops. And yeah, I mean, you've seen some of the seed corn, especially under the stressful environments, oh, yeah. right? So any advice mm-hmm. around water hemp management and seed corn? 
Yeah. I mean, biggest thing on water hemp management seed corn, really, right? It, it's once we lose canopy or we never even have it with seed corns in some instances, um, that's really that's really the biggest detriment. And additionally, we have pushed it. And I, I hate to hate to say it. There is some HPPD resistance out there. It is tends to be in those seed corn type production acres because they've been, it's been relatively relied on in a in a large degree because of the safety of the HPPDs and that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, then once we lose canopy, it becomes a nightmare scenario. So the best way to try and do it, do it, uh, do these is we still have even in a HPPD challenged uh, environment, we still get um, efficacy on with those products if we use them from a pre standpoint so we need multiple modes of action and, and, and i i know it sounds preachy and, and people have heard this heard this um a mantra from me for a long time multiple modes of action and uh, high rates of residuals that's really how we manage that and there's there's a specific field that i've worked with uh, several years that's that's um, confirmed HPPD resistant seed corn production that that we've been able to manage relatively well with uh, with um, uh, high rates of uh, and it basically takes a full rate found you know full rate pre um, and then we follow that up with a complex post almost to a full rate as well. And, um, you know, again, I'm trying to be brand agnostic and, and that sort of thing, but it really takes almost two full rates of, a of pre-type corn products in with that overlapping residual type mind frame, making sure that we don't let anything, anything come up. And that is especially how they deal with it out in, uh, Nebraska and, uh, Western Kansas where Palmer is really, really, you know, really really tough to deal with is the whole mantra is never let it see the light of day yeah. and that's making sure you are stout residual and that's how you're going to unfortunately have to deal with that seed corn acre and oh you know maybe they like it maybe they don't you know there's never been a weed resistant to steel yeah so uh, <laughs> so, uh, so there you go that's a call <laughs> the nasty word so uh. <laughs> so, so Dean, to, to put in perspective and, and uh, you know, to be in the grower's shoes, th- thinking about a, a full rate of a residual in, in seed corn versus their, you know, just their, their production corn, um, mm-hmm. what, what would that look like? You know, well, you know, you know I, I guess I'm just thinking about all, all the, the recommendations I used to give, you know, and planning for, you know, your pre's and post and the residuals within it. What does that, mm-hmm. from, from your experience, what does that, what does that look like? Yeah, from, from my, my, my experience, and again, I was trying not to, not to bring up a brand, but it's sometimes that, that's maybe the only way to give a, a an example. Well, I, yeah. it, for, yeah. for the record, yeah, I mean, you feel, feel free, talk, speak candidly. There's no, there's no concern. Yeah. We, yeah. I mean, we want to talk about yeah. reality. So, so <laughs> like in some of the sea corn acre, you know, like, uh, you know, bicep at two two quarts followed by acuron at you know two to three quarts right that would be a that would be one of the recommendations i'd have on a seed corn acre or i might do a uh, um bicep downfall by lexar or lumax at a full rate now obviously depending on your seed corn 
some seed corn varieties or hybrids ha- or varieties have, you know, sensitivities to those HPBDs. So you got to yep. kind of work within the, that time frame or w- work not time frame, but work within whatever that uh, the company is saying the sensitivity of those uh, inbreds are yep. and that sort of thing. So you got to kind of work within that. But you, that's kind of where where I'm at. And versus a commercial acre, you don't have to get that aggressive because really the the um, canopy does a great job of helping to uh, uh, reduce weed population, right? Yep, yep. Where I think that's that's starting to maybe fall apart is if we have, you know, we talk into um, we get tar spot or any of these other diseases that all of a sudden cause early leaf senescence late in the fall. And then all of a sudden we got light penetrating the canopy yep. and we get a flush of weeds germinating. Yep. That's, that's all of a sudden becomes, it's going to change the game. Right. Uh, and then maybe we need to start thinking differently about things, but uh, if we, if we have our normal canopy and everything, we should be good to go. So, when I start talking about it in a commercial acre, it's what do we do to when they don't have to be that full rate pre followed by a stout post, but what what's can I spend an extra five dollars somewhere yeah. to make that pre a little bit better, a little bit more complex? Because yep. we talked about the the fertilizer savings there that you can have. What what do I do just to make it uh, incrementally better? We're not yeah. talking about oh let's go out and spend another forty dollars an acre. No, no, I just need a little bit of something. If that little bit of something is a, a a cultivator, fantastic. If that little bit of something is uh something else, you know a cover crop, fantastic. Yep. Make something else to help with that weed control. Make our diversity better, and that's going to help us in the long run for sure. I, I think that call out around fertilizer is really valuable because I think obviously it's it's pretty uncomfortable to look at at fertilizer prices right now and then and then obviously all inputs are a little bit uh, a little bit scary when you sit and you're and you're building these plans but certainly if we think about fertility tie up it probably helps offset the cost of of a more stout chemical plan uh, if mm-hmm. if you're weighing those. Um, Dean, in the interest of time, I, I feel like you've done yourself a disservice because you're going to have to come back for another podcast. I feel like uh, I feel like we could do a, a standalone episode or two. Um, but but uh, if if we could, would you just would you just kind of switch gears for a minute? And I mean, we're we're kind of already doing this, but just to put a succinct tie a bow on this. Give give our listeners your two or three key takeaways as they plan for 2023. I mean, um, and and I think I think you've already kind of done that when when we've talked yep. about overlapping residuals. Um, so so one would be overlapping residuals. Uh, give me your other your other key takeaways as we plan 2023. Yeah, big things for me is as we we look into the future, we got to think about our weed populations, right? If we got if we're struggling there. We got to think about rate appreciation. How do I make my my system a little bit more complex? Because I think there's a study out of the University of Illinois that says, you know, uh, if we if you employ two uh, two or more modes of action, you're 83 percent less likely to develop resistance. Okay, Mm -hmm. so if we employ find a way to make it a little bit more complex, we're not talking about again spending forty dollars an acre. How do we take it, make it a little bit more complex? 
How do we have a little bit more rate appreciation? I think that's start start one. Uh, make sure that our overlapping residuals are timely, right? We Once we start seeing weeds flush out of that, maybe our residuals running out. We want to be spraying dirt, just like we talked about on that that uh, soybean on on that soybean acre. Yep. And then thirdly, I I know, you know, find a way to bring some diversity in this, whether it be a cover crop, whether it be a cultivator, whether it be you name it, find a way to make this a little bit more diverse of a system. And I think that's going to help us out. Um, I know those kind of things uh, get, get farmers, get some growers a little bit uneasy because, you know, it's like they're pruning roots or what have you uh, with the cultivator or even the cover crop. Maybe there's some allelopathy they're, they're scared yep. of. I think there are some, some tangible things that we can do to help us out so that we keep the herbicides that we have for the long term because if we don't make changes guys we're going to lose what we have and yep. then they are going to be forced to employ these other method methods and maybe more of an aggressive situation than they, what they were planning on well, so. well like sean said i, I do think you <laughs> you uh you kind of invited yourself onto another podcast because i would i would love to pick <laughs> your brain at some point you know you, you look at some of the weed control issues that australia has Right. Yeah. And uh, that's that's not where we want to be. So, yeah, I I'd definitely love to, to pick your brain on that sometime. And uh, as usual, Dean, I, I continue to learn from you. Uh, I really appreciate the info and uh, glad we had you on. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for the opportunity. Yep. Thanks a lot, Dean. We'll uh, we'll be in touch to schedule you soon, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. See you, Dean. Hey, we're back uh, with our next guest, uh, Jim McDermott from uh, Northwest Iowa. Jim, how you doing? Uh, doing well, Andrew. Awesome. Well, I am super excited. You know, Jim, you are in a, a territory that has faced, you know, you got a, a small percentage of, of your territory that has faced some extremely harsh conditions all year. And so, you know, as, as we, we talk about or, or talk with agronomists from across the Corn Belt, you know, we, we've definitely uh, spoken with, with, with uh, agronomists that have been in some ideal conditions throughout the year and, and then some others that have been in some, some pretty rough conditions. So I'm, I'm really excited to learn from you because, you know, you've, you've, some, you've, you've been someone I've, I've looked up to, you know, since before I knew you. You know, I just remember uh, knowing who you were before I knew you. So I, I really look forward to picking your brain and learning from you. Uh, appreciate that, Andrew. But uh, boy, that... That makes a very high bar to reach your <laughs> expectations, but hey, try to do my best. Jim, to, to start out, uh, for for the people listening to our podcast that don't know you, um, tell us tell us about your role and the area that you support. Yeah, you bet, Sean, and, and glad to be on with you too. Uh, you guys have done a great job with the podcast, so honored to be on. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm based in Spencer, Iowa, uh, been with the DeKalb brand a number of years, uh, boy, a around 27, give or take, um, covering really from Spencer West, so kind of the, the western half of northwest Iowa. Uh, so it gives you a little bit of an idea. But, yeah, for like you mentioned, Andrew, you know, for, for most of the year, that was an area that was under the uh, extreme drought or whatever want whatever category you want to put it into. It was definitely a, a dry area this year. Yep. So, so look, looking at, at that, Jim, you know, we had uh, a, a pretty good year in 2021 and I know, you know, up around that Carroll County last year, um, you know, it, it didn't quite, quite go as far North as, as it did this year. Um, what, what were growing conditions like last year versus this year? 
Well, um, you know, the year from the beginning, say planting on through uh, most of the tasseling or, or mid-July was very similar. Uh, above normal heat units, uh, dry weather, you know, which I, I don't mind. I always like seeing above normal heat units before pollination. It you know, yep. keeps us moving along in the vegetative state. And then in 2021, uh, we did have uh, cooler than average conditions after reproductive stages, at least on corn, and then more moisture through August and early September. So uh, we were able to to finish uh, very well as far as uh, having um, an opportunity to, to keep that plant going, keep it alive longer, getting more kernel depth and uh, translating to the beans, of course, more pod fill. Yep. Where the, the really the, the, the difference in my mind this year then was that latter half of the season, Andrew, where uh, this year we never really got those late rains. And, you know, I'm talking in, in general terms, but across the board for the most part, as we got to the, the western side of northwest Iowa, uh, we really didn't get that moisture late season. Um, we're talking areas that grow on, on the growing season from planting till harvest or black layer, I should say, you know, had uh, 12 inches of rainfall, maybe 10 inches, even nine inches of rainfall throughout the growing season. And if you remember, uh, to really grow a corn, corn crop, we need 22 to 28 inches. Yep. Uh, so the math doesn't quite add up <laughs> if you end up with that much rainfall and knowing what we had going into the growing season. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's amazing yields that we had considering all those factors. Yeah. When you, when you set out, I guess, for 2022, did, did you have, uh, Anything in particular that you were trying to observe or or learn? It seems like every year we kind of set out with with some practices we're trying or or different theories. What what did that look like for you in twenty twenty two? Yeah, that's a great question, Sean, and, and and very broad. I mean, on on the on the just basic sense, I'm always trying to learn about hybrids and varieties yep. and, and how they're performing against each other, how they're performing. Uh, in relationship to yield environment, to other agronomic practices that we put into place. Um, and really, and on the basic level too, I'm just trying to learn about what goes into producing a good crop, you know, be it a dry year, be it a wet year, be whatever type of year Mother Nature throws at us. So uh, on the basic sense, that's what I'm after every year. So, so, so Jim, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, you got quite quite the difference in, in environmental conditions. And, and I'm assuming yield uh, here with the, the, the 2022 year we've had look, looking at that area within your territory that, that was severely dry. Is, is there anything just within that area that really stood out to you as, as far as, you know, could have been nutrient deficiency or compaction or just, I mean, the border effect was big this year was, you know, just, just for, as examples, was there anything within that area that just really stood out to you that was like, Hey, this is something that we should think about for next year, or this is something that really impacted plant growth and development this year. Well, sure. And, and you've mentioned a few of the key ones, but, uh, you know, just to add on, you know, really some of the things that are done that growers are doing around nutrient management uh, making sure that they've got uh, good levels of P and K, obviously having nitrogen available to the plant early in the season. You know, some of those are kind of the blocking and tackling some of the basic things, but yep. those things really pay off and show up in a year when you've got stress and you've got variability, like you mentioned. So, you know, some of those things um, really did tend to shine or rise to the top as far as uh, overall yield levels. And really the other thing too, um, especially since this year we had a chance to look at it for the first time, but uh, you know, being able to protect roots 
is very key, and yep. not only in a dry year, but every year. And this yep. year, we got a chance to look at the uh, SmartStacks Pro, and and that was that was a fun thing to evaluate. And, and I would say we had overall a root, root, a lower rootworm pressure yep. than uh, we've had the last couple of years, but uh, a, a trait like SmartStacks Pro was still able to uh, rise to the top and being able to protect roots uh, even in moderate feeding situations from rootworm. And then, of course, give us a little better stress tolerance where we were uh, under dry weather. And, of course, roots become that much more important. Yeah. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. You know, you were in, uh, I, I would say, the mecca of, maybe not the mecca, but you were in a hot spot when it comes to rootworm population. So here, here I found a lot of our conversations. Uh, we, we've been joking about being in, in hot spots with tar spot. Uh, but you're, mm-hmm. you're definitely in, a, in an area where you got you got to think uh, about rootworm management. And so I'm curious with that, you know, how, how do you have that discussion with growers, especially in that area of dry, you know, where you were really dry? How's that conversation going into, into next year? And what's your recommendation? That is the key. You know, what did you learn from this year and then going forward? And, and you know, you, it does still start with the genetics. You know, you need to have genetics that have good yield potential. Uh, obviously stress tolerance too, when we're thinking next year and thinking about not having our subsoil replenished. Um, but you know, now, uh, especially as we go into the heavy livestock areas, um, in Plymouth, Sioux, Lyon counties, but we also have a lot of extended diapause feeding in our rotated acres up here. Uh, so we're, we're really kind of bringing it into every conversation that, you know, especially if we're thinking dry weather for next year, possibility of additional stress. We want to do everything we can to protect the roots, uh, make sure we've given that plant uh, a, a every chance possible to make sure we're accessing moisture and nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, ex- I'm glad you brought that up. That extended diapause conversation really changes how, how you got to think about e- even the rotation, right? You know, you're, I'm still lucky in my area for the most part, there, there's maybe talk of a little extended diapause, but for the most part, you know, we can still go into a rotation, assuming we're, we're good with, you know, no, no traded corn below ground, right? So how does that change the conversation in your area where you have such a hot spot and, and you know you have confirmed extended diapause? How does that change that conversation when you're looking to rotate? Right. And it's, it's, it's a great point because it, it's uh, not very clear cut. So <laughs> sometimes you like, you like those things that are black and white and you can have answers, yep. but with extended diapause, you know, there's no soil test like there is with soybean cyst nematodes. There's, there's no way of really knowing from year to year. I mean, you can base it on what you had the previous year or, or two years ago in this case with extended diapause, but you, you kind of have to just go by, uh, by history and, and of course, scouting what you've seen for standability, uh, what you've seen for yield levels. Um, but really, fortunately, we're in a in time period where we've got a little higher commodity price. So uh, a lot more growers are willing to look at uh, using a, a trait like SmartStacks Pro or SmartStacks uh, for insurance, um, you because know, we we really want to maximize yield. We don't want to take that that risk, uh, maybe not uh, not hitting our top end or having some standability issues. So uh, it, it does enter into the conversation. You know, a lot of it is what is the risk level of the grower? Yep. Uh, you know, does he want to pay for a little more insurance out there in his field? with the chance of the potential of extended diapause. Yeah. When you see extended diapause, Jim, in, in these fields, like give me a moderate to severe case. What, what type of economic either acre impact or yield impact are you seeing? Um, we, we've seen so little of it that, that I don't know that I've, I've measured, you know, in central Iowa, significant economic impact. But when you're in a, in a heavier zone, what are you seeing? 
Um, you know, and that really does come down to the environment, uh, just like with anything that's affecting the roots. Yep. You know, you, you, you get a dry year, of course, or you have compaction or you have a, maybe a nutrient limited field. Um, you know, that, that cost of some feeding is going to be a lot bigger than other, other fields where you've got some of the other management factors taken care of. But uh, I've, I've seen cases where uh, we can lose uh, 30, 40, 50 bushels an acre uh, from wow. extended diapause. And it, the thing about with extended diapause is it tends to be more spotty, uh, not only from field to field, but even within the field. Uh, we're in corn on corn. If you've got uh, rootworm pressure, it tends to be consistent across the whole field. But ex- extended diapause, you'll, you may have a hot spot where you'll, you'll lose that 50 bushels and then you'll go a couple hundred feet down the row and you may not have much pressure. So it does get hard to, hard to predict that. And uh, again, sometimes it's all about, do I want to take the risk or, or do I not uh, want to take the risk at all? Well, and that's, that's really kind of our job as advisors, right? Is, is understanding risk tolerance and, and, and trying to determine those ratios of, of how to put growers in the most successful position. Um, you guys play a really important role, uh, your understanding of agronomy and, and trends, Help help us as you think about having conversations for 2023. What you know, knowing the conditions you guys have gone into and kind of the weather trend. What what are the top couple things you're telling growers to think about as they put their 2023 crop plan together? Yeah, and that's always a great question, uh, in particular this year with uh, some of the dry conditions. But um, my answer may not be uh, maybe a uh, uh, anything eye opening, but uh, probably the first thing I think of, Sean, is. I'm not really going to drastically change plans. Um, you know, I, I don't want to plan for failure. Yep. I'm not going to go into the year thinking, oh, we're going to lower our yield goals or we're going to back down on, on inputs. Um, you know, population is always the wild card and, you know, it depends on where a grower is at. You know, we've learned some things from population and especially where we have the ability to variable rate. Uh, we know we can, we can pr- squeeze that population down depending on the hybrid um, sometimes in, into the, the mid twenties, if we're on a very light piece of ground. So, you know, we've gotten some data from these dry years that can help us manage some of the population recommendations for next year. Uh, but in, in still in the, in the, in the big picture, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into the year drastically changing plans, uh, just because it is uh, a dry, uh, stretch that we're in right now. You know, I'm going to plan for, high yields. I'm going to plan for moving forward next year. And, and, uh, you know, and then as we go into the season, then sometimes, uh, you know, we, we can adjust or sometimes we can, we can make those tweaks, uh, during the growing season, depending on what mother nature is throwing at us. Yeah. We, we had that exact conversation today around, around, uh, hybrid populations and, and, uh, you know, made the comment, we're going to know a lot more April 15th when we're ready to deploy this stuff than we do today. And I, I like the call out to, uh, stay optimistic and, and plan for success and then, and then make adjustments as we need to. I think, I think it's always our role to be optimistic and, and, and help think about ultimately hitting the, the big goals and then respond to what mother nature gives us. So, um, Jim really appreciate you taking time to join us today and, and, and give us your input. We'd love to stay in touch with you and, and, and keep informed on, and what's happening in Northwest Iowa. Yeah. Always, always enjoy listening to you, Jim. I appreciate the time. Well, appreciate your guys' time, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, Sean and Andrew, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. You guys are doing a great job here. Well, we appreciate that. You uh, you have a great rest of the fall, and we'll catch up soon. All right. Sounds good, guys. Thanks. Thanks, thanks Jim. Talk to you later. 
Hey, welcome back. Uh, we're lucky enough to have uh, Neil Borgemeyer, uh, an agronomist uh, who covers the entire state of Iowa. Neil, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Very good. Very good. Well, uh, thanks again for being on here with us, Neil. You know, we've, we've been talking with numerous agronomists to, to try and capture any relevant information uh, on the 2022 growing season. So that when we make our recommendations uh, to growers going into 2023, we'll, we'll, we'll be smarter and wiser when it comes to those recommendations. <laughs> so so let, let's t- let's talk 2022, Neil. Uh, was there anything that, that stood out to you, good or bad, uh, when it when it comes to uh, growing corn and soybeans? Yeah, you know, Andrew, you, you mentioned there that uh, I cover the whole state of Iowa. So yeah, I got I get an opportunity to see a lot of different uh, variables east to west, north to south across the state. And I guess you know a couple of things that did stand out to me that were kind of trends. And you know, the first one was obviously a lot of the area experienced some drought or some lack of uh, moisture. But I think the thing that was different this year than we've had in the last few years is we had a lot more heat. We had a lot of 90 degree temperatures there and, and you know, and we'd get them for four or five days in a row and then it would cool down. But um, we haven't, we've had drought in the last few years, but we haven't had that heat combination. Yep. And I think that definitely had an impact on, uh, on the crop that was different than say the previous couple of years. Yep. And, and that would align kind of, you know, we, we've been hearing a lot about that border effect and, and that would follow suit, you know, the, the, the higher the temperatures, the more moisture can be held in the air. And, and you look at already, you know, being short on water going into the year and, you know, the, those April rains kind of saved us. But then you look at the, the wind, the high temperatures, um, the lack of rain, uh, you know, once we got into April, end of April slash May. So yeah, that that definitely would impact, uh, especially those areas that didn't get uh, those timely rains. So that that's a that's a good point, Neil. Yeah, it's always interesting that uh, these fields do create almost a little microclimate uh, within themselves, and um, it's always interesting when you do walk into a field on the edge and you walk into the middle, and you know certainly there are some days you can feel the differences on it. So. Um, yeah, I think the, the heat definitely played a bigger role this year than it has in the past. And it's certainly what I saw then it came down to is uh, pollination time. Um, when we went out and we looked at some of these ears, you know, we saw some that were um, uh, maybe a little smaller than what we were expecting. <laughs> Other cases, we saw ears that had big cobs on them. And, you know, right there just tells us is the timing effect of when that stress occurred at the stage of growth that plant was in. Yep. yep. Um, and then, uh, you know, so my other trend that I saw across the state would be that uh, the fuller season products in both corn and beans um, generally had the higher yields. It was like a stair step. As you went up in maturity, you also went up in yield. Except there's always an exception to every <laughs> Uh, planting dates then did uh, figure in on that too. Oh, yeah. Yep. So as we got into the later planting dates of late May, um, you know, if I looked in southern Iowa, the 110 days started to uh, out yield 115 days in that later planting date, and then as you moved north, you know, the 110 days uh, or the 105 days then became um, the yield leaders in that late planting date and same thing with, with soybeans. Yep. Uh, so yeah, those, those planting dates, uh, uh, made a difference. And again, it's all in the stage of growth that that plant was in. And you look at some of those planting dates and when they started to pollinate and there may be only, you know, say 
five, six days difference. But you lay that over the weather pattern we had. And when I said earlier, we would have these four or five day increments where we were 90 degrees or warmer. And that plant happened to be determining, like say it's in V12 stage, and it wants to determine the number of uh, kernels in that uh, in that row. Some of those smaller ears, that's when they were being formed. And, uh, and then some of those ears that had a long cob on it, they missed that, but yet they were trying to pollinate in the next wave of heat that we had. And yep. so they either didn't pollinate or they started to abort. Uh, so that really, I think, tells me the importance and what we can learn and what we need to do for next year is that we need to continue to make sure that we um, have a package of products of different maturities and also different genetic backgrounds. Yep. Help spread that out. I mean, boy, our equipment allows us to plant a lot of acres in a short period of time. And where's our diversification coming from? It's got to come from genetics. Yep. Yep. Now, that, Neil, that, that's been a pretty consistent theme is, is, is planting date. You know, I think uh, as we go across the Corn Belt with some of the agronomists we've talked to, you know, planting dates really matter this year. You know, looking at some of the, the earlier planting dates and, and discussing crown rot to some of the later planting dates. You know, we had a lot of growers nervous about planting late maturity corn, you know, g- getting into the, the middle of it. To the, to the end of May. So yeah, that, that was definitely a, a very, I think, I feel like throughout the entire growing season, that was a, a pretty heavy topic of discussion and then just kind of topped it off once we got into harvest and started seeing yields of those products. Yeah. The other thing you know, that I thought was really amazing is the amount of yield we put on during that late grain fill stage. Yep. You know, first you looked at those kernels and they looked awfully shallow. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we started harvesting and we're like, wow, look how deep those kernels were. And and the yields in most places exceeded what we thought. It may not have been as high as we wanted in some areas, but it was still was better than it looked a month earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, so, a, that's a really good, good point. I, I think today's hybrids in general put more yield on with kernel depth, kernel size. And so my takeaway is that we need to continue to make sure that that crop is uh, growing and and, uh, is able to uh, take advantage of that late uh, grain fill. Our September seemed to be warmer, longer. Um, You know, I think we got to keep our crop in good health, um, fertility-wise and plant uh, disease protection-wise. Yeah, that's a a really good point, Neil. You know, whenever I'm doing talks about, um, you know, just – crop crop development and specific specifically corn you know you get to that r5 stage and, and a corn kernel still has about 45 percent dry matter give or take that it needs to accumulate through that dense stage and so you, you look at the impact that i mean obviously you, you look at the factors of yield you know it's it's uh number of plants per plants per acre ears per plant kernels per plant and then the weight of those kernels and so that 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 weight, you know, that last forty five percent of dry matter makes a huge impact on on your final yield. And so I think you, you bring up some really good points about managing uh, the the need to manage later in the season. Yeah, and then the other thing we we were able to do some short corn trials, and several of those I had were with. Um, uh, split applications of nitrogen, wide drops, and, and those uh, practices. 
And uh, it was amazing. Each one of those that I had, there was a yield advantage to those late applications of nitrogen, which again, just reinforces to me keeping that plant um, at full level to take advantage of that yep. grain fill time. Yep. So you mentioned a couple things um, that I've already written down, Neil, in terms of planning for 2023, the the plant to package, uh, uh, genetic diversity, and, and then I kind of took inherently relative maturity diversity. Um, what, what else are you advising uh, growers and sellers to consider as they uh, put together a 2023 plan? Uh, well, probably two more things on there. And again, it centers around keeping that plant at, at full speed, even towards the end of the year. So that's using a, a fungicide um, at that R1 stage. Um, and then also um, anytime that we can, um, split apply some nitrogen, get some nitrogen out there again, especially if we get some heavy rains, you know, some of those areas got a heavy rain and uh, uh, we might've lost some and then some yep. other areas where it was really dry, you know, we didn't get the mineralization. So, you know, I think um, there's certainly a good practice to do it on a, a every year basis, but it also, I think we need to look at the year that we're in and be able to make some of those adjustments um, on the fly, if you will. Um, based on what Mother Nature gives us, let's let's unpack the split apply nitrogen for a minute. Um, so, if you were having that conversation with a grower, what what's your? I, I realize it's very farm specific, so I'm I'm asking kind of a thirty thousand foot view of something that's probably much much uh, narrower than that. But when you think about that, how do how do you like to split that nitrogen up? If if we had access to whatever tools and resources we needed, what what's your favorite way to apply nitrogen under a split application? You know, some people were putting them in, um, you know, with some twenty eight or you know thirty percent with their um, uh, with their herbicide, um, and then uh, you know and that then they were putting their regular amount on. And so I, I think that's all dumping it right there at the, at the beginning. And um, I would like to see that wide drop applied later yeah. uh, in, in that year. So you may not actually be applying any more than what you were doing before. You're just going to be putting it on at a different time. I seem to encounter uh, when we have that conversation, push back around. Yeah. But if I wide drop and it doesn't rain, that seems to be that seems to be a pretty consistent response. What what about if we're not getting moisture, or maybe the more appropriate way to ask that question would be, really, how much moisture do we need to secure that wide drop application? That's a great uh, a great question, and I don't know if I have the exact you know amount of rain that has occurred, but a lot of that was applied this year. It was fairly dry at the time. Now, um, it is amazing if you do get some dew, how much moisture it, there is around the base of the plant. And I don't know if that's enough uh, to do it. But again, we had uh, we had applications applied in dry conditions. And when we went back and checked the, the yields between between the two, there's definitely, you know, 15 to 30 bushel yield advantage on that late application wide drop in dry environment. Yep. I think that's something that would be valuable for Andrew and I to unpack. Maybe, maybe that's an episode in and of itself, but I know that's one of the concerns that I seem to, to hear from growers. It makes sense when you draw it out on paper and talk about a plant 
nitrogen need and, and timing cycle and, and why that later application is important. But there's definitely a belief, um, I've, I've heard it referenced that, you know, if you don't have a half to three quarters of an inch of rain, um, they, they have a concern whether founded or not, that that nitrogen just doesn't uh, doesn't make itself available to the corn plant. So that's probably something Andrew and Andrew and I should should unpack because I yeah. I definitely think there's agronomic benefit. And, and Neil, to your example, we've heard from growers and agronomists as we've done interviews talking about that late season application uh, paying huge dividends. And so so obviously there's at least anecdotal evidence supporting that that maybe we don't need as much moisture as we as we think we do, uh, to make those effective applications. Yeah. I, I think you bring up a really good point, Neil, you know, I've, I've seen that, you know, you get a little <clears throat> dew on a corn plant, those, those leaves just funnel that moisture to the, the base of the plant. So I don't, I don't think we have to worry as much about, you know, spreading it on a, on a f- dry surface and, and, you know, the sun beating down on it. So yeah, it definitely would be good to, to uncouple that and dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, it might not be as efficient as if we did get a rain, but how efficient is that uh, that 50, 60 pounds put back in the spring? Yep, when when the corn plant actually needs it, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, Neil, that's uh, you've had a lot of good a lot of good information. So uh, as as we wrap up, is, is there anything else you can think of that that would benefit uh, growers hearing you know as they plan for twenty twenty three? You know, it probably comes around to soybeans and uh, weed control. <clears throat> and again, I think it, it all comes down to being flexible and what we can do uh, with what Mother Nature gives us. You know, we we put a lot of pre's down early and then we want to come back and plant. And then uh, all of a sudden we did that, but it, uh, it was too cold or in some places got some rain. So that got delayed. And then and then when we finally did plant the crop, um you know the was the herbicide there to help with weed control and so we just got to be i think flexible with uh using a layered approach with our uh, herbicides and um and, and i really believe that uh we almost need to like plant and then just circle a date on the calendar and we're going to go back out there yeah. um, and start spraying again and um, the other thing is we're, we're pushing the dates planting our soybeans which has been showing good results yep but we also need to manage it uh, based on those earlier planting dates too. We can't um, have a herbicide program that follows our old practice when we're planting earlier. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good call out. You know, we, we we've in, in the last few years we've we've kind of changed with some growers the order of uh, you know that that they plant corn and soy, and and then that you know they, they go and do that, but they don't change up that herbicide program. And, and yeah. you know, then have weed problems. So that's, that's a really good call out, Neil. And then you got to follow up with harvest too. Well, if we're, uh, we can't let those beans sit out there. <clears throat> we need to be uh, really uh, proactive and get after that soybean crop early. Yep. Yep. The sooner we get the beans out, the sooner we can get the corn. I think that's <laughs> what all Iowa farmers are striving for, aren't they? There you go. Well, Neil, uh, I really appreciate this information. Um, you had a lot of good points here, and, and I think this will be beneficial for a lot of growers to hear. So I uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us today. And uh, hopefully, the, you know, as you continue to plan and, and uh, you know, uh, plan for 2023, uh, hopefully things go well for you.
Well, thank you guys. And uh, likewise, hope things go well for you also. So thanks for having me on. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, Andrew, that wraps up the uh, fourth and final episode of Agronomist Edition. I'm almost sad that it's over. Uh, This has been one of the neater projects that we've worked on since we started this podcast. Um, I really liked kind of the diversity there as we we heard from people with just a wide range of passions. But uh, go ahead and uh, give our listeners kind of the Andrew Penny key takeaways from the fourth and final edition. Yeah, I really enjoyed enjoyed this as well. You know, it, it's always fun to collaborate and discuss with with people that have passions similar to yours. You know, I think I think everyone on on here obviously is is hugely passionate about crop production and agronomy. <clears throat> but within that, you know, everyone always has their areas of expertise or, or different things they're looking at. So so to go back and, and listen to all of these, um, it, it's you know it's been a lot of fun. I've I've really enjoyed doing this and, and really appreciative of of all the agronomists and, and people that I know that you know took time to to be on this. So um, you know this this was an, an, another really good episode. Um, af- after re listening to it, you know I, I definitely had some some key points and I thought some some stuff that I think are are worth you know summarizing. Um, you know Matt Nelson talked about risk management through maturity diversity. You know, I, I think Sean, that's something that's probably the echoed through, you know, or a number of agronomists have, have brought up. You know, there's definitely a, a maturity shift going on, but I think I think there's been a few that have brought up. You know, don't don't lose that that maturity diversity because that's 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 a form of you know risk reduction, right? You know, whether that's you know warm weather pollination, uh, whatever it may be. Um, you know, Jim, Jim McDermott brought up some really good points. You know, I, I always joke uh, he's kind of in the rootworm mecca you know, rootworm capital of the world. So, you know, if, if the, the more we can learn just on, on that from, from him, the better. And, you know, talking about new products that we have out there, new technology, um, you know, on, on top of that, he's, he's up there in, in Northwest Iowa where, you know, I, I can't remember if it was D2 or D3, but man, was it that, that little bubble up there in Northwest Iowa was the, was the driest part in the state. So, you know, uh, le- learning about the, the, the impact that nutrient deficiencies and, and all that and, and you know, can have in, in, in drought conditions like that uh, was interesting to hear. Um, and I think the one thing that he said that really stood out was, you know, don't let 2022 impact your 2023 decisions, right? Still plan for high yields, still plan on, on doing everything right and, and assuming that Mother Nature will provide us the rain and we can we can once again achieve those yields that we're used to here in Iowa. Um, Dean Grossnickel, man, uh, talk about, you know, uh, <laughs> really enjoying listening to someone that, uh, you know, kind of like Scott Johnson Im- impacted my career early on. You know, he's, he's someone I've looked up to for a, a number of years and still every once in a while I'll call Dean and, and get his opinion on stuff. So, you know, I, I always enjoy listening to him talk about weed control. And, and the one thing that probably really stood out, um, you know, we, we get a lot of questions often, especially with the weed, weed resistance now and in, in seed production, how to, how to manage that. And so I think that segment alone, going back and listening to some of his recommendations would, is, is you know, is going to be hugely beneficial for growers. Um, and, and then listen to Lauren Botine, you know, she had, she had some really good uh, points, but the one thing that really stood out to me is I, I enjoy talking to her about soybean gall midge. You know, it, it's a, it's a new, and a, a new pest, you know, I think we first ID'd it in, in Iowa, maybe 2018 or 2019. You know, I, I remember going up to, when I was at Iowa State, we went up to Northwest Iowa 
And uh, we, we thought it was a disease at first. And, and then finally, uh, we had an entomologist in the lab uh, figure out that it, it is, you know, a midge. So, you know, talking with her and, and, and seeing how fast the, the gall midge, if you look at the map, I think it's pretty much been ID'd in every county on the western part of the state for the most part. So it's, it's definitely a new and emerging pest. But, you know, it, at this point, it's really not too yield robbing, um, but definitely something to keep an eye on. So, you know, Sean, I, I really enjoyed this episode. It's kind of, it was a lot of work and I, I did do a really good job of lining up every <laughs> agronomist I know. Yeah. But uh, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that always likes to continuously learn. And I'm, I'm not the expert in, in a lot of things. And, and that's where I always like picking the brains of, of other people. And, and I think, I think we all become better and, and become experts. It's over the, over time and it's kind of cumulative, right? You know, the, the more people we talk to, the more experiences we have, uh, you know, the, the, the more we know in the long run. So I, I really enjoyed doing this and kind of sad to see it come to an end, but I've already thinking, I'm already thinking about an episode during planting, right before planting an agronomist edition planter tips or something yeah. like that. So what was your thoughts on the episode? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, you know, I would say that, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you and I have sat and, you know, there was a little bit of fatigue in recording all these and then, and then, uh, the process of, of going through and putting the episodes together, but, um, with the holidays coming up and just kind of reflecting on a penny for your thoughts as a whole, uh, and then you talking about Dean, um, and then, and then frankly, uh, Lauren with, with soybean gallmage too. I just think how lucky are we that we live in a day and age where we have access and relatively easy access to such an amazing Rolodex of great agronomists covering such a large geography. And then the, the, the amount of passion that they bring is just really encouraging. I like the idea of risk management and the idea of plan for the best. You know, we're, we're planting the 2023 crop, not the 2022 crop. Um, but we have such an amazing group of people that we can call on for agronomic advice. We certainly know that next year is probably not going to be like this year. Uh, no two are the same, but um, it's, it's pretty awesome to have such a, a diverse group that has seen so much that has so much passion to share that with, um, with us and our listeners. And so I know it's been a real privilege to be a part of. And, and I almost every week I feel not necessarily guilty, but just appreciative that I'm getting to learn so much from all the people that choose to invest time in, in the show and, and to our listeners. So, uh, certainly grateful for that and, uh, hope everybody has a great holiday and look forward to joining, uh, joining our listeners again, as we kind of talk about what we're going to do for the 2023 growing season. That's a wrap. For joining us for another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. As always, we love feedback from our listeners. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. We'll chat at you next week.